the crowd here today kind of makes me reflect back on our carport days, if any of you were there for that. One morning, I was preaching, and uh, if you were there, you remember this well, uh, but a, a chicken came running through the middle of, uh, uh, of like the little alley or the little break between the chairs, and, and the dog was chasing it. Did it kill it? Okay, it, well, there was a dog chasing the chicken, anyway. And, uh, you know, I remember preaching and thinking, you know, it's really, really difficult for me to stay on track here <laughs> with dogs chasing chickens and all. Um, and I can only imagine, yeah, and I can only imagine how difficult it was in, during the time for anyone to even follow what I was saying if I couldn't follow it myself. Um, we have text this morning that relates to the people of God not rightly being able to hear a message from God himself that he is very plainly delivering to them. And we might say, well, when the message we're given is kind of jumbled and we're distracted and the person giving the message isn't speaking very clearly, it's really easy to not hear that message, right? But what if the message was very clearly and plainly given to you, but you still didn't hear it? Whose fault would that be? Well, it would be on the, the side of the hearer, wouldn't it, rather than the speaker. Here we have a people this morning who have clearly and very plainly been given a message, and they choose to not hear it each and every time it's given to them. And the message is so simple, but they don't hear it. So we're going to read first in this, these first six verses of Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to read how this played out for the northern kingdom. And then for the rest of the chapter, we're going to hear how it might play out for the southern kingdom. Do you remember that Isaiah was the prophet to the southern kingdom at this time? They were located uh, centralized in Jerusalem. And then the northern kingdom was quite a bit north. And, uh, and we're, going to, we're going to talk about them a little bit. When it says Ephraim in our text, it's, it's talking about the northern kingdom as a whole. And so we're going to see how God has dealt with them what their problem was, and then the people hearing are supposed to take that as an example of what not to do and then apply it and change, right? So let's see what God is doing with the northern kingdom in the first six verses, and let's see if the southern kingdom can get the message and apply it to themselves. We'll see what happens. And in doing this, we're going to look at several different things that, that Isaiah wants us to see. All right, but let's look here first at the, at the first six verses. All right, it says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like the storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like the storm of mighty overflowing waters, he cast them down to earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trouted underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before the summer when someone sees it, he swallows it as, it is, as soon as it's in his hand. In the day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty, the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now, seems like a lot of cryptic words here because that probably didn't have much of an impact on you. <laughs> it definitely didn't the first time I read it. But here's, here's, here's the thing. We're going to walk through just several points this morning. The first that Isaiah wants us to see is the crowns 
of pride. Okay, we see that in the text. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, what is a crown in this circumstance? We remember a crown from about the, Ro the Greek Roman era. What was a crown back then, and, and what was it made with? It was made, um, sometimes made with uh, flowers, fresh flowers, actually. Um, so it would be quite beautiful to look at, and it'd have a nice fragrance to it and everything. And, and if you were to win some kind of prize... Uh, we, we kind of think of the Olympics in that situation, right? If you were to win, you would get a crown, and in that crown there would be glory, and you would be prized, and there would be a claim given to you for that. But what happens to that crown of, flesh, of fresh flowers eventually? It, it dies, and it fades. So that glory only lasts for a time, doesn't it? And that's what he's saying basically is happening to the northern people of the northern kingdom, is that they put a crown on their own heads. What was that crown? The crown was pride. So they put a crown of pride on their head, but just like flowers and things that are alive, but you cut them down, they're not going to live forever. They fade in their beauty. They fade in their glory. Such is you and your pride. It's fading. It's dying. And you know what? You're going to feel its effects very soon. Okay? So he says they are drunken. They are overcome with wine. In this situation, he wants us to see that they're off balance. A drunken person is confused, is stumbling, is staggering. They can't stand up straight. They look like a fool, right? They look like a fool. And that's how God wants us to see. That's how Isaiah wants us to see the northern kingdom of Israel at this point. They've put a crown of pride on their head. They think it'll last forever, but it's fading very quickly. And how God sees them is stumbling, staggering fools, and what will he do to these fools? The time of writing, most likely, it's, it's, it's uh, understood, was somewhere between the year 730, 722 B.C. Okay, we know 722 B.C. because 722 B.C. is the time when the northern kingdom is taken by Assyria. Assyria, remember, is the major threat at the time, right? The major threat is coming for the northern kingdom, but what do they think in this moment? The major threat that could take our life will not touch me, will not harm me. We are fine. That's the crown of pride on their head, right? We can make it on our own strength and on our own wisdom. That's the crown of pride. God says you're a fool and you've put a dying crown on your head and soon you're going to see that. The imagery makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The Lord says, look, in verse 2, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. Like a storm of hail, destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he's, he cast it down to the earth with his hand. And who's going to be hit by this storm that God, that God cast to the ground? The northern kingdom. Do you think that their pride might be dissolved in that moment when they come down to ruin? They thought, we can withstand anything. Throw whatever you want at us, God. We are fine. But God throws it, and what will it do? It will cast them to the ground. And soon they'll see how faded their crown of pride has really become. And it says in verse 5, The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Now, so their crowns of pride that said, I can withstand anything on my own strength. God will send them crashing to the ground, specifically and historically by the invasion of the Assyrians. They're going to 
completely take them over, take them captive, right? But instead, this fading crown that they've put on their heads will be replaced, as verse 5 says, with a crown of glory, and the crown of glory is the Lord of hosts. But who will be wearing the crown of glory? Only the remnant of the people. Again, you see that in verse 5. The crown of glory, a diadem of beauty, to who? To the remnant of the people. Did everybody survive the storm when God sent it down from his hand, the overflowing rush of waters? Did they all survive? No, but there was only a remnant who survived. And to the remnant, they look back, and now instead of wearing a crown of pride that fades, they now are wearing a crown of unfading beauty that is the Lord himself. But were they wearing that crown before the flood of waters? No. It took a rushing flood of waters for their crown of pride to be knocked off their head so that God might put a crown of glory on their head who is himself. Does this make sense? This is what God does. This is the example that Isaiah sets. Look what happened to the northern kingdom, okay? They thought they were great, wearing crowns of pride. God sent a great storm, knocked them off their feet, knocked the crowns off their head. Many were destroyed. But a remnant remained, and the remnant who remained is now wearing a crown that of unfading beauty and glory, who is the Lord himself. Now, don't you want to be like those people? Don't you want to be like the remnant who has an unfading crown of beauty, who is the Lord himself? Okay, if you want to have that, crown on your head, what needs to come off your head? The crown of pride. So take the lesson from the northern kingdom. Unless God sends his storm on you and knocks it off your head, some will be destroyed, but a remnant will remain. This isn't the first time that Isaiah has talked about pride. Isaiah 2.11, the haughty looks of man will be brought low, the lofty pride of men will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Do you see him doing that right here? Do you see him doing that? Anyone who says, I can do things on my own, he will say, no, you can't. If you have a pride of life, God will knock that pride right off your head, and it will hurt. Why, though? So that he alone will be exalted. Who is the only one worthy of being exalted? God himself. He made a promise, and he's going to fulfill it. He alone will be exalted. Galatians 6.3, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you think that you're something? You're nothing. Who is something? God. If you think you have something because you have God, now that's wisdom. But if you think you are something apart from God, you're deceiving yourself. And that's what's called pride. You are nothing without your God. You are nothing without the Lord. One last passage I just want to reference. John 2, 15, and 15 through 17. Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't you see the fading crown here? The desires of life, 
pride of life, desires of the flesh, it's fading because the world is fading. This stuff won't last. But what will last? The Lord and those who seek him, the one who abides in God, will last forever. What do you want out of this life? Satisfaction to fulfill your desires, your hopes and dreams, and whatever you have in life, that's what you're going to do to try to fulfill them. What about when you die? What then? What happens to all that stuff you were seeking after? All the desires of this life, everything that you have here, will fade and will die one day. Because the world is fading and dying. And it will go. And it will be replaced with something new that lasts forever. But if you abide in God and you do His will, you abide forever. Now what does the will of God have to say? Well, the will of God is contrary to the will of man. The will of God is contrary to your will. What God desires is in contrast to what you desire. So we have to take what we desire, replace it with what God desires. We have to take us thinking we can stand on our own. We have wisdom by ourselves. That's the crown of pride. Take it off. Let it be replaced with God's unfading crown of glory. We need to trust in Him, rely on Him. Isaiah 10.20 in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So it says that you rely on things in this world, just as the northern kingdom did, as the southern kingdom is, as we'll see. But it won't always be that way for the remnant. God will knock you so low that you'll realize you can't stand on anything else. I can't stand on my own wisdom. I can't stand on my own strength. I can't stand on my own money. I can't stand on my own job. I can't stand on my own education. I can't stand on anything other than the Lord himself. Everything else is false. I hope you see that this morning. That's the crown of pride. We all wear it. You can do one of two things. You can take it off your head, humble yourself before the Lord, or the Lord will knock it off your head. Look at verse 7. These also, kind of changing, changing our subject here. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all their tables are full of filthy vomit. There's no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast. It is precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, this is repose, that they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Okay. The thoughts of children. That's what we're looking at next. It says, these also... So, 
And as we'll see here, he's, he's changed his subject to those of the southern kingdom. He says, okay, first six verses, that's the northern kingdom. But you all know that they've kind of gone astray. But he just summarizes who they are, what they've done, and how horrible it is, and what God's doing to them. So now he changes, but he says, now, but let me tell you about a different group of people who also does the same thing, and even, in fact, maybe worse. Let me tell you what this group of people does. They, they, have, they reel with wine. They stagger with strong drink. Okay, just like the other one. But who is it? Well, in this situation, it's the priest and prophet. The very people who are supposed to be the ones speaking on behalf of God to the people, those are the ones who are drunk, staggering, and off balance. They reel in vision. That is... Prophet has a vision. Well, you know what? That was false. That wasn't even God. You had a vision because you were drunk. And then you go and you proclaim that vision to the people? A drunken vision from a fool? But that's what was happening. This is the word of God, but it's not. So God looks and he says, verse 9. Yeah, back up a little bit. Verse 8. For all their tables are full of filthy vomit. That's gross to even read, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, there were, there were tables where the priest would sit in judgment. And they would lay out the law. They said, but your tables are full of vomit. Where's the word of God? There's no space for it. What a gross picture. All they have is their filth. Where's the word of God? It's lost. There's no space for it. And even if it was there, it's covered up. And then uh, now verse 9. So, so he asks a question. So to whom will he teach knowledge then? And to whom will he explain this message? Remember, there's a message that they needed to hear, but they couldn't understand it and it was plain. Remember that message I was talking about? So to whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast? That's a question. Little tiny babies? Because they're actually more intelligent in this situation than these drunken fools. It's pretty harsh language, isn't it? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The language here uh, evidently mirrors that of language given to those who are uh, young, very young school-age children, and that's how you teach them, right? Line upon line, here a little, there a little, teach you a song to memorize your alphabet. We're going to go over the letter A all week, and maybe by the end of that week, you can write the letter A, and you can recognize the capital A, the lowercase a. Maybe you can recognize but by the end of the week, okay? But we're going to go over the letter A all week. Here a little, there a little. Can I get any more plain for you? Can we be any more elementary? Can you be any more like children, you fools? That's what he's saying. You drunken fool. I can't make it any more plain. You're a child. I think actually children would listen better than you. That's, that's hard. That's what he's saying, and it's very harsh. Right? To who? The, the prophet and the priest, the very ones who are supposed to be speaking for God. This is who he's saying this to. Were they distracted? Were they not listening? Was God stuttering, maybe? I don't think so. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 and 21. This is, write this down or turn to it with me. So this is a very good passage. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 21. It says, Brothers, 
Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. If you're going to be a child in something, let it be in evil and sin. Right? Don't understand those things. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, By strange people of tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He just quoted from Isaiah 28, verse 11. This is not me reaching to the New Testament to try to find some kind of application here, okay? This passage was just quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is what he means for us today. So therefore, do not be a child in your thinking. Where God is to come to you and say, all week, we're going to be studying the letter A. You're 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old. Do you need to be studying the letter A all week? I hope not. You probably should have that one mastered by now. What kind of things are we talking about? A great reference for that is, is similar words from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. I'll read it for you. About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but yet you need someone else, to, again, to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Where do you fall in this? You child? Are you mature in your thinking? What does that mean? When life situations hit you, do you have to go back to the basics? Like, I don't even understand how this could happen. You know, there are so many situations you could apply that to. You apply that. Think about the situation in your life, the most recent situation in your life. How did you respond? According to the word of God or like a drunken, foolish child? How did you respond? Did you have discernment? Did you have the word of God guiding you? If not, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness, if that's how you responded. Now, if you go back and you think, now, I think I responded rightly. I, 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 when this happened, it didn't shake me to the core, but I, I went back and I, I remembered the word of God. I, I, I focused on the word of God. I focused on God himself. I didn't take up my crown of pride and wear it in that situation, but instead I knew that if I try to stand on my own, God's going to smack that crown off my head. So I went ahead and just didn't pick up that crown and I, I just, I went to God because all I can stand on is God and his word. Maybe that's the way you responded. If so, that's good because it shows that you're eating solid food. You're not staying a child forever. That's a hard one, isn't it? Very often we are children in our thinking. But we can't stay children. You can't disregard the word of God. You can't disregard the study of the Word of God. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be like Lena, unfortunately. Lena's not a studious person, okay? There's bad news headed for us in the future. <laughs> All right? 
Jane is very studious. Jane is humiliated when she gets something wrong. So she will make sure she doesn't get it wrong. Ever you go to teach Jane something, she wants to teach it back to you right away. Lena is in Lena land. She doesn't know. She doesn't care to know. Lena, what do we just, I don't know. It, she has her own language. Have you heard Lena language? But you tell her, you teach her the letter A all day long. You teach her how to spell her name over and over and over. By this time, Jane was doing math, I think. Lena's still learning to write her name. So different. But which one are you? Are you in the Word of God memorizing, I don't want to get this wrong? Or are you in your own, your own place? You don't know what it says. You don't care what it says. I'm going to do my own thing, speak my own language. Or do you want to speak the language of God? What world do you live in? Next, let's look at verse 14. Verses 14 through 22 is what we'll read next. Talking about the shelters of lies now. Therefore, the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you've said, we've made a covenant with death, with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, the Lord God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone tested, a precious stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Water will overwhelm the shelter. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand the overwhelming scourge. It will pass through you. You will be beaten down. As often as it passes, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through day by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. What message? That's, that, that same message we've been talking about that's so plain... You will hear it soon, and when you hear it and understand it for what it is, it will be sheer terror for you to understand what I have said. What is he saying? Look back a little bit. Verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. So we're talking about the leaders here, right? You leaders. And as go the leaders, as go the people. So we know we're talking about the people as a whole, right? Verse 15, because you have said, listen to what they've said. We have made a covenant with death, with Sheol we have taken agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. Okay, what does that even mean? Well, there's a historical significance here. Is that the southern kingdom has just made an alliance, an agreement with Egypt. Okay, they are scared of the Assyrian threat. They know they're coming for the northern kingdom and we've just heard the word of the Lord, it, it, they're going to be taken away. We don't want to be taken away when the whip comes, right, to beat us. So what are we going to do? Trust in the Lord God and, and lean on Him? Or say, yeah, God is our God, but just in case, let's make an agreement with Egypt, who seems to be our only ally in this whole world. And they have said that they will come beside us with their great chariots, and they will help us. So when the overwhelming whip comes to beat us, hey, it won't touch us because we have allies. Okay, so God, you might, you might by your own hand send this threat. But listen, it's not going to touch us. 
we've done something you're not aware of, God. Uh, we, we've, we've prepared for this day. We made an alliance with Egypt. So now we're not going to be touched. And it says their covenant that they made is now with death. And with Sheol now do they have an agreement. And again, if you, we're going to look at this more soon. But in, verse, in chapter 30, it specifically talks about this alliance with Egypt. So we know that this is what he's talking about, okay? Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2, it talks about that. They are taking shelter in a lie. Who has told them this lie that they'll be safe? They told it themselves. If I just take shelter in Egypt, when God comes to beat us with the hand of the Assyrians, because remember, God did this. God sent them. And the Assyrians is the rod of God's anger in his hand, and he's using them to beat them, right? Isaiah 10. But when you come to beat us, uh, we've tricked you. You're not going to be able to touch us because we had an alliance with Egypt. And he says, you have made an agreement and a covenant with death. He says, when the overwhelming whips, it will not come to us. We've, we've made lies our refuge. In falsehood, we've taken shelter. You're lying to yourself if you think you can protect yourself from me. Verse 16, therefore the Lord says, listen to what he says. You're familiar with this, with this passage. I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, the precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We know that verse, right? We've heard that many times before because who is he talking about? Jesus. So I should only put my hope in one thing and in one protector and in one shelter? In Jesus Christ. Again, that's not reaching to find something that's not there. Peter quotes this specifically for it. I want to read that passage where Peter quotes this. It's always good to look if our New Testament writers are specifically quoting from our passage. I think it'd be wise to read what they have to say about it, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Listen to what he calls them. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that might you may grow up into salvation. So don't stay as infants, but feast on Christ and grow in maturity. That's a theme here, right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, maybe you don't realize how good he is because you've never tasted him. Therefore, you say when the Lord comes, I don't want any more of that. I don't want to feast on the word of God because you know what? It doesn't taste very good to me. How do you know? I don't know. I've never tried it. Some of you don't try new foods. You say it just looks gross. It smells gross. It looks like it tastes gross. You say that about the word of God. You say that about the Lord himself. That's, never, that, that's not going to work. I don't, I don't want to read that. I don't want to trust in it. I don't believe it. That, that won't work. It's gross to me. Have you tried it? Maybe you haven't tasted that the Lord is good. Because for those who have tasted it, sometimes you taste something and you realize it's bitter now. And you spit it out of your mouth. And you say, I don't want that. I want the Lord. I want his words. And I forget something. I forget how good the word of the Lord is. Because I think, oh, maybe I'll try this this time. And it's gross. You spit it out. I want the word of the Lord back. Just give me that. I forgot how good it was. Feast on the word of God. That, that's what you want. That's what you need. But it says, as you come to him, 
as you come to Christ, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Excuse me. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a, uh, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, you can't have a building without Christ. You can have nothing without Christ. Anything you build without Christ will crumble. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. When the word of God becomes clear to these people, it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Why? Because true righteousness and justice are now the measuring lines. Look at what it says. It says in verse 17, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Okay? What, is, what are we being measured up against? Perfection. That's what we're being measured up against. So when you understand the message from God is, I am measuring you up against perfection and you have failed, it will be sheer terror to understand that message. Unless you have put your trust in the cornerstone. Right? Because if you're putting your trust in yourself, you will crumble and fall. And it will be terrifying to realize, I have started building something that will never stand. He says, look at verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. The covering is too narrow to wrap yourself in. Okay, he's talking about the shelter of lies and falsehood. Okay, imagine that you have, you wanna, you're in a situation, you want to shelter yourself, all right, and you go get a little baby blanket to cover yourself in. It's not going to worry. It's not going to cover you completely, right? You're going to try to squeeze up underneath it. It's all you have, but it's too small. It won't work for you. So are your lies. You'll realize soon that these lies can't cover you. You can't actually take shelter under falsehood. So he continues, verse 21, The Lord will raise up on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. Now, that is terrifying. I have heard a decree of destruction coming, because righteousness is the plumb line and justice, and everyone has fallen short. Therefore, destruction is coming. Do you understand it? Can you hear it now, plainly? Are you terrified? That's how he wants them to feel. Strange is his deed. What is this deed? And why is it strange? Well, he gives us two examples. Mount Perizim, 2 Samuel 5. This is when David was leading the people. God gave the Philistines into their hand. And David says, the Lord broke through their enemies like a breaking flood. That is, David and his army were against someone else, Philistines, and they thought, well, there's no way we're going to survive. But it says that the Lord intervened, and he broke through their enemies like a flood. Okay, that's good. So that's how God is working here. That's why his deed is strange. And then the second example, the valley of Gibeon. This is in Joshua chapter 10. When Joshua was leading the people, God gave them the Amorites and those five kings that all gathered together. And if you remember that story or not, 
the Lord threw hailstones from the sky. And it says more died from the hailstones than from the actual army of men. And then it says Joshua prayed and the sun stopped for about a day. Do you remember that story? It says just like that, this deed of the Lord is going to be strange like that. It'd be, in a sense, new. It's alien. It's foreign. He hadn't done this before, but he's doing it now. You see how it's strange? It's foreign. It's alien. Strange is his deed. It says in Isaiah 10, 22, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So though God destroy, righteousness is around the corner. All right. Let's look at the council now. The councils of God. So our last section, verses 23 through 29. Okay, so we have kind of the message given to us. We understand that God is doing something strange. He's doing some kind of strange work and that ultimately everyone is being judged against true righteousness and justice. No one can stand. Therefore, judgment's coming. Destruction is coming. Specifically, historically, judgment is coming for the southern kingdom. And if you don't change... Something might happen, but prophetic words say, but listen, destruction is decreed. I'm just letting you know, this is what's about to happen. Prepare yourself, because only a remnant are going to return. That is terrifying. Am I part of the remnant? Isn't that the natural question you would want to know? Am I going to be destroyed in this, God, or am I going to be saved? Don't you think there were some asking that question? So now... He turns to, I think we're going to like this, he turns to some parable-type stories here. They're very simple, but he's helping us to understand the message that he's just given them. So let's look at the counsel of God as it's given through these different little stories here. It says, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention. Hear my speech. Here's what he says. Verse 24. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? And when he has... Level this surface, he does not scatter dill and cumin, but he puts it in rows and barley in its proper place and amor as the border, for he is rightly instructed and his God teaches him. That's number one. Stop right there. Okay, so this is our first imagery that he wants us to see. He asks a question. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually and never stop plowing? Well, no. That's kind of silly to think that. If you're going to plow... You're going to plow, and then when you're done plowing, you'll plant your seeds. That makes sense, right? When he's leveled the surface, he scatters the dill and the cumin, he puts it in rows. He doesn't just throw it all together, but he plows the ground, and then he puts his seeds right where he wants them so that they might grow and then there might be order. It's not chaos. And he says, for he is rightly instructed. Who is rightly instructed? The farmer is rightly instructed. He's learned this from God. You know why? Because this is how God works. Is he going to plow up the ground continually? Is he going to create chaos with no end and only hurt and destruction? No, he's not going to do that forever. He is plowing the ground so that he might plant his seeds for growth. Can't you see it? Can't you see that he's doing something? He's not going to tear it up just for the sake of tearing up the ground. But he has a purpose. 
Just as the farmer has a purpose that he tears up the ground so that he might plant his seeds, God may be tearing up something for you so that he might plant seeds for growth. Do you see it? He's rightly instructed, by the way. His God teaches him. It's how it works. Okay, so look at the second illustration. Verse 27. He says, okay, think about this. Dill. Dill is not threshed on a, with a threshing sledge, nor a cart wheeled over uh, cumin, but it is beaten out with a stick and with a rod. Okay, stop right there. That's one in itself. Okay, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Probably none of us know what a threshing sledge is. I think it's okay that we don't know. Nor is a cart wheeled over it, but it is beaten out with a stick. Okay, so, but here's the example. We understand what he means. You take dill. The wrong instrument to use is a sledge, so he doesn't use it. He uses a threshing sledge for some other kind of crop, but not for dill. So he uses the right tool to harvest the dill. Nor is a cart wheeled over it. Right? That's the wrong tool. He doesn't use a cart. He uses the right tool, which is what? It's beaten out with a stick and a rod. Okay, so when the farmer goes to harvest what he's planted... Does he use the wrong tool to make sure that it produces a good and useful crop? Well, yes, he does. He's not going to pulverize something so that it becomes useless. God didn't plant a seed so that it might grow up and him destroy it. But he planted a seed that it might grow up and be useful. Is this making sense? He's not going to let it grow and then he's going to destroy it with the wrong tool. But no, he's going to carefully pick it out and harvest it with the right tool. That's good. That's good news. Final one, verse 28. Does, does one crush grain for bread? Evidently not. Okay, I, I don't know the answer to that, but clearly the answer is no. No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Okay, what is this with the grain and the bread? Does he crush the grain for bread? No, he doesn't crush it. He doesn't thresh it forever. What does he do when he takes the grain out? He doesn't beat it. The word here is literally to grind into a fine powdery dust. If you did that, it would be useless. Does God take that crop and beat it forever so that it becomes useless? No, he takes care of the crop that has grown, that it might be useful. It's the same lesson from the dill, right? It's the same lesson. Where did this wisdom come from? Well, it came from the Lord because this is how he works. I wonder if you're asking some questions right now. I certainly did. Okay. So it sounds like God is going to, if we're making some application here, God is going to take those who are proud, which is all of us, all those who don't meet the line of perfection, which is all of us, and he's going to tear up the ground of our life that he might plant seeds, and when they start to grow, he's going to make sure they grow into something useful. Is that what it sounds like? It sounds horrible, doesn't it? Do you know why? Because I don't want to be beaten and rolled over with a cart and have my ground torn up in my life because it sounds painful. And you know what? It is painful. 
I want to end this morning by taking some application points from a specific person who went through this. All right? It's not a personal application here. It's not from someone in my life. It's someone from the Bible. I want to see that the Lord tore up the ground of his life, that he planted seeds, and that those seeds grew into something. I want you to see that when the Lord does something in your life that seems painful, it probably is very painful, but he is plant, he's tearing up the ground that he might plant his seeds. Do you want God to place a seed of growth on the surface? I don't know if it's going to take root and grow. Wouldn't you rather the ground be plowed so that the seed might go in, you cover it up, and God cares for it and waters it that it might grow. And when it's ready to be harvested, he's going to take care of it. He's going to make sure that you bear fruit. You get it? He's going to make sure, that, but he has to plow the ground first. And that part hurts. And when the seed is in the ground and it's about to sprout, but you don't know, is it going to grow? Is it going to grow? I don't know. We start to question life. Is anything ever going to come of this? Have you ever been at that point in life? I certainly have. I think we all will be. If you're not there today, you will be there at some point in your life. And I hope you remember what I'm saying. There's going to come a part in your life, a point in your life, where you're going to question, can anything good, can anything come out of this horrible situation? Let's look at the life of Job very quickly. And I want to summarize this with three things. You can go ahead and put that on the screen. Here are the three things I want to look at very quickly. These are the texts that I'm going to reference. We're going to see the suffering of Job. We're going to see the sin of Job. And we're going to see the solution, how it resolves. Okay? Tell me if this sounds right. Job 6.4. It's my first reference. He says, Job says, The arrows of the Almighty are in me and my spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed in me. Have you ever felt the arrows of God sunk deep into your life? The pain. Have you ever felt that? By the way, it doesn't say the arrows of the enemy. You all with me on that? It doesn't say the arrows of the enemy have sunk deep into me. Because then it would only be for my hurt and not for my good. But if the arrows of the Lord are in me, I know that it will be for my good because he is only good to me in Christ. Right? If the arrows of the Lord have sunk into your life and it hurts, the Lord is tearing up the ground that he might plant seeds for growth. He is knocking that crown of pride off your head that you so commonly pick up. Job 6, verses 8 through 11. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would exalt him in my pain unsparing, for I have denied the words of the Holy One. This is my strength. Why should I wait? What is my end? Why should I be patient? He's asking God to take his life. Because he sees nothing good in this. Have you ever been there? I see no good. So just take me already. Why, what should I wait around for? Could it be that the Lord is 
tearing up the ground of your life and getting the rocks out of there that he might plant seeds that something might grow? Could it be? Or do you think this is just pain for pain's sake? Do you think this is punishment for your sin? Do you think this is wrath? Then you're unskilled in the word because all of our wrath has been absorbed in Christ. God will not punish you for your sin. He will discipline you, sir, but punishment has been taken already. Job 13, verses 13 through 15. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Whoa, have you ever said that? Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Do you see what he's come to the conclusion of there? Just previously, chapter 6, he's saying, Lord, take my life. But then in chapter 13, he's saying, you know what? Scratch that. Why should I put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. But I will let come on me what may. Though he slay me, I will yet hope in him. Why? Because I have no hope anywhere else. Okay, so that's the suffering. The sin. Job 32 verses 1 and 2. So these three, they ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Oh, what was he wearing? The crown of pride. And then Elihu of the family of Ram, he burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Job 40 verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? This is God speaking to Job. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? I haven't done anything wrong here. If you ever get to the point to where you say, listen, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing to deserve this. You are wrong. You need to fall on your face and repent of that. You have done everything to deserve anything bad that might ever happen to you. God doesn't owe you anything. If you think that he does, that's pride. You think you've done something to earn God's favor, that something good might happen to you. God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. Okay, so that's the sin in Job's life, pride. The solution. What, 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 okay, so what, what is the outcome? What if I see pride in my life today? What should I do? I hope that that is where we've all arrived. Okay, I get it. I hear the message, I'm a fool, I'm, I'm a child, I'm prideful, I, I take shelter in lies, I get it, I've done all that. What should I do? Job 42, verses 2 through 6. I know that you can, do, you can do all things. This is Job's admission to God. I know that you can do all things. And I know that no purpose of yours can ever be thwarted. That if, if God intends to do something, is, is he going to do it? Can anybody stop him? No. Verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I spoke and I was dumb. I spoke and I was a child. I didn't understand. 
Forgive me for being a drunken fool. Verse 4, here and I will speak, I will question you, and I will make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the whole point, isn't it? That God might tear up the ground, get all the rocks out, and man, that's painful. As Job said, it's like arrows sunk deep into me, and it hurts. I think I'm going to die. In fact, my suffering is so great, I ask God to take my life. And I get to points where I say, okay, listen, I realize that's not right. No matter what comes on me, I will put my trust in you. And now that I see you clearly, myself is out of the way. You've knocked the crown of pride off my head. Here's what I conclude. I despise myself. And I repent. That's the goal. That's the end. You know what repentance is? Fruit. Fruit. You're repenting of being in the wrong. I don't want to be in the wrong. A mature person repents often because he sees himself in light of who God is. And I often say to myself, I despise myself. I see myself judged against God's line of righteousness, and I, I fall so short of that. And so I repent. I don't live my life in misery. Why? Because I have a God of hope, and I know that whenever I ask for forgiveness, I have it. And there are times when I wear the crown of pride, and I say, listen, I haven't really done anything wrong. Bad stuff has happened to me, and you know what? I don't deserve this, God. I've been working hard, okay? Look at me. I'm up here. I'm preaching a sermon, okay? I worked on this sermon. I don't deserve this stuff to happen to me, all right? Or do I? Absolutely. I despise myself. And it makes me retreat to the word of God. That's my only place of hope. My only refuge is in God himself. And though he slay me, I will still hope in him. He is my only shelter. He is my only refuge. He is my only glory. He is my only pride. 